Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today, Dr. Ekbal Hussain, a remote sensing geoscientist from British Geological Survey, is talking to us about his work and the importance of geophysics and satellite data. Ekbal is a passionate STEM advocate and science communicator. In this conversation, we discuss what a hazard risk is and how the BGS map them globally. Importantly, there are common issues found around the world that exacerbate natural hazard impacts. And during this conversation, we will be highlighting what they are and what can be done to improve safety around high-risk areas. Ekbal, great to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. Um, What did you study uh, and where to get you to work at such a prestigious organisation? I've had a bit of a circuitous uh, journey around my education. I spent um, a few years in my teenage years living in Bangladesh, actually, where I completed uh, my, my GCSEs there. But really, my, my sort of interest in hazards started when I went to university, where I did a degree in natural sciences at Cambridge, um, which, you know, one of those great places where you, can, you, can, you don't have to pick one subject. You can pick a variety of them in the sciences. So I was lucky enough to study, you know, maths, chemistry, geology and physics for, for the first few years, but then decided, actually, I enjoyed the geology aspects. I enjoy looking at how the earth works. Um, but then I was lucky enough to uh, do a PhD at the University of Leeds on the more details of satellite geodesy and geophysics and really trying to understand how satellite data can help us address and understand Earth processes. And from there on, you know, it, it was a, a short postdoc and then on to the BGS where I've been since 2018. And how did your degree in natural sciences at Cambridge prepare you for your career at uh, British Geological Survey uh, and in hazard mapping in general? I, I, th- I think it's not necessarily just Cambridge. I think any degree in the sort of physical sciences is really a, a window into how we understand the earth. And I was lucky, like I said, enough to study several subjects that were sort of on the periphery of the natural hazards work. So I studied physics and chemistry. But I think having that sort of background in science is really what we need the sort of the the sort of analytical approach to understanding problems in the earth system i mean it's not always been ideal so the degree in natural sciences gave me a really strong background in in a geology and earth processes and earth systems but when i started my phd and now my research you know there are also the other skills that we all need that's often sometimes overlooked such as programming and you know coding and you know and the mathematical sort of prop sides of, of research that I think is becoming increasingly more important now so in my students I always encourage them to not only have a good solid grounding in the science but you know learn all these practical skills that they will need in in their jobs whether it's a research career or, or otherwise and would they be the subjects that you would recommend to geography students, perhaps if someone was choosing their A-levels um, to accompany geography, if they wanted to follow in your footsteps into hazard mapping? You've mentioned physics and chemistry and um, IT. Yeah, so I, yeah, definitely. So the physical sciences, I think, are always going to be important, understanding that. But the skills what we need in in the jobs are are equally valuable. So learning some some simple 
programming is always going to be beneficial for you, regardless of what job you go into, or, or the simple data analysis. And you know, even if it's using Excel to you know plot graphs and understand what these graphs mean, are skills that we should really be really encouraging in all subjects. But more and more important for me over the last few years has been the sort of appreciation of the human elements of geography. So I'm a physical scientist and I understand physical processes and their impact on people. And realizing that hazards and disasters are fundamentally about people. It's taken me a long way to realize that. And I think we should be pressing that message home for students and undergraduates and to realize that you know, we can do hazard mapping and, and GIS and all these sort of the physical computational models, but ultimately this is about people. And if you don't understand people, communities, societies, and all the structures that communities have and the variety of their structures across over the world, we ultimately can't mitigate disaster risk. And that's a, such an important lesson, I think, that's taking me a long time to, to realise. And that's, of course when geography comes in, bringing the two worlds, the physical and the human, together. Mm-hmm. Um, in your work uh, for BGS, do you look at specific locations or do you scan the globe using a particular approach and form of management? Um, so a bit of both. So as a person in my research, they tend to be more location-specific. Um, so I have projects in Indonesia at the moment where we're trying to understand very local hazards from a local earthquake tectonic fault and a subsidence, which is an issue I would like to come back to in a minute. But also as an organization, we do the global sort of checking as well, particularly in the volcanic hazards. The UK has no volcanoes on our mainland, but we do have two volcanoes on our overseas territories. So the the UK does have volcanoes, uh, amazingly. But not only that, we work with our international partners and friends and colleagues and all these bodies to give daily and weekly reports on volcanic activity and other hazard activity around the world. And this gets sent to the UN, the European Union, or other big bodies who are need to be aware of. Additionally, the UK government, whenever there's an, a big event anywhere in the world that could impact British interest, particularly you know, volcanoes or, or earthquakes, they ask us, you know, could you give us a situation report? How, how dangerous is this? How important is this? And what are the likely impacts to people, communities, and particularly British interests, usually tourists around the world. So we do a bit of both. My particular interests are local research issues, whether that's in Ethiopia, Vietnam, Indonesia, or or, or Central Asia. And you mentioned impact reports there. Um, Why is satellite data important in those reports and in um, hazard risk management in general? I think the great change that's happened, and one of the big revolutions that happened over the last two decades or so, is this this explosion in the availability of satellite data. I mean, in the early 90s, this was all experimental. You know, we were trying to send up satellites. Most satellites going up into space before the 90s was all about looking out into space, into the universe at large, looking outwards and what's out there. And, and that's, you know, as that sort of the space dream came out from that, looking the the, the Hubble telescope is the most, probably the most famous of them all looking out and taking pictures of the universe. But it was only in the 90s that we really started thinking about, instead of looking out, what if you're sending to space and look down? Look at our world and the blue dot that we live on. And that was all experimental in the 80s, 90s, and they started developing systems to look down. And we realized we can learn a lot about our Earth just by looking at it from space and measuring things from space. 
And all of those experimental satellites, you know, sort of came together in the Europe, at least, about 10 years ago when the Copernicus program was released. Uh, it's a big Earth observation program funded by most of the European partners, and in, in addition to uh, uh, partners from Canada and Japan and elsewhere, to fund a whole suite of satellites to basically take do a health check on planet Earth. Uh, it's like going to the doctors. So we have a whole set of satellites out there taking measurements of almost everything, temperature, pressure, wind, hopefully soon, optical, radar, everything you can think of. It, we're taking measurements of it. And that's really revolutionized the way we think about Earth processes from how the, the plates are moving around the world. We can measure all these small motion, millimeter level motions from space to how the glaciers are dying back, how the glaciers are thinning, how we're losing the ice caps. All these measurements are being made from space routinely and regularly. And that has helped us understand hazards and their impacts on societies, principally because a lot of this data is now free. So anyone, you or I, could go online, download the data, and look at it. It just so happens that we as scientists can then take measurements that help inform our scientific models. But anyone can download this data now. And that has really helped. So to understand that what we call the disaster cycle. So my particular background is in earthquakes. And many places around the world won't have earthquakes most of the time. But what they do have, where they have a tectonic fault, where the earthquake happens, there's fractures in the ground, they tend to gather energy slowly over time. And this, this could be decades to centuries to even millennia, this slow building up of energy on these faults. And the amazing thing is, from space, we can measure this to like a millimeter level accuracy, motions of ground slowly deforming and collecting energy on these faults. So that's what we call the pre-earthquake phase. And then, of course, the earthquake happens. It ruptures. It, may, it moves the ground in, almost instantaneously and very dramatically, as you will know. And we can measure that motion as well from space, that, that, in, that, that time when that motion happened. So then we can build a model. Okay, so this is ex the motion that's happened in the earthquake. This is where we think all the damage is going to be because of that motion. And then you can, the satellite, you can task satellites to fly over and, do, and check where have all the buildings collapsed, where have the roads been destroyed. And obviously in an emergency setting, these are all really important information for emergency planners, emergency managers. One of the lessons we learned from Nepal in 2015 was a lot of the focus happened in the capital where obviously a lot of people are and in a lot of buildings collapsed and you know, there was lots of search and rescue efforts in the capital. But what, what was probably underappreciated was there are loads of isolated villages to the west of Nepal. And the earthquake triggered lots of landslides that cut off the roads. And so those communities were then isolated from aid. And so a lot of the satellite images and UAVs and drones these days have helped sort of map those areas and, and to, to direct, redirect aid in a better way. So satellite data is helping us in the whole se sequence of pre, during, and post-disaster. I've got a, a side question, if it's all right. Um, what was done before remote sensing um, and satellite data? You mentioned the 1990s when there was, there was this revolution, when the satellites turned inwards and started tracking planet Earth. But I wondered, how did geoscientists like yourself predict earthquakes before then? Well, I, I should I should say one caveat. So we were slightly behind the curve. The, the Americans, NASA, have had this one amazing satellite that's been running since the 70s, I think, Landsat, that it's quite famous. So that's probably the, the uh, that was the pioneer, as it were. But, you know, we, the rest of the world caught up slowly in the 90s. So before, though, before all this, 
it was difficult. It was it was basically people on feet, um, walking around, taking measurements by hand. We have had in the last 40 odd years GPS instruments that we can put out into around the world. So GPS sensors, you know, they're just like your phone, but we have super duper accurate ones that you just dig a hole in the ground, put lots of cement in it and stabilize that platform and, sh- and stick a GPS sensor on it. We have, we have a whole network of these all over the world taking these sort of measurements. But, you know, it's not, it's not enough. You can't stick a GPS instrument every 10 meters everywhere in the world. That's just too expensive. The satellite data has really helped that. The other thing we do, and I've been doing for a long time, is seismometers. So the seismic network that was really put into the ground in the 50s, 60s, 70s to monitor nuclear tests at the time to, to just make sure who, we can see who's do, who are doing secret nuclear tests and you know, not sort of defying the bans and treaties. The unexpected benefit from those was that you could, they also measured earthquakes. And so we've been pretty good at measuring earthquakes around the world, so the locations and the size and magnitudes since this, with this seismic network. But the satellites have given us the spatial scale resolution. We can look at now every meter of the globe almost, every two, three, four, five meters, and see, okay, what's happening in that four or five meter box, which has not been possible before. And, you know, when there was a disaster in the past, it was all about people walking and driving, and, and, and it's very manual, very laborious. And often people were missed because you didn't know that isolated village over there was, was, was completely isolated because of the roads closure because you hadn't actually gone there yet or couldn't get there. So it was difficult. And these EO Earth observation data are helping us address these challenges now. Um, there are still challenges, you know, in terms of now we have almost too much data. Whenever there's a major disaster around the world, whether it's natural or, or otherwise, the most of the space agencies in the world have signed an agreement called the International Space Charter, where whenever there's a disaster and someone triggers that charter, all the space agencies release their data for free, even the, the commercial data. So no, a lot of satellite data is free, but there's some really good high-quality data that's still commercial you have to buy. But they, because of a, of disagreements, they release that data for that humanitarian use. And now the challenge often is, how do we re- put all that together in a way that you know, a disaster manager on the ground or, or even a charity on the ground can use it in an effective way? Mentioning... Um... Uh, collaboration there. Do all countries have access to satellites like the Copernicus and Landsat? And if not, do high-income countries share their data with low-income? So that is a very, very important question because before around 2014, this data wasn't free. You know, you had to buy this stuff and it was was prohibitively expensive. But I think it was the European Space Agency who sort of pioneered this idea that why don't we just make it for make it available for free and see what happens? And what's happened is everyone in the world now has, has access to the data and the creativity and innovation and the scientific discoveries coming out of using that data has skyrocketed. And that was probably one of the great things we did. And I think NASA followed soon after. A lot of its EO data is now available for free. But that's these are still government agencies, right? So these are government agencies who release data for free for the world's good. But there are still commercial satellite companies out there, private companies who, who run their own networks that get, collect data at higher resolution. That's sort of a, you know more the way you can see smaller things in them, and often that data is still commercial, and and very expensive. So there is a, still a disconnect sometimes um, where a lot of the data is available for anyone and everywhere to access, whether that's high income, low income. 
some of the higher quality stuff is still expensive, even for us to buy in, in the UK. So let alone a, a researcher in, in, in a poorer country. So this is still remains a challenge. But you know, there are loads of agreements in place now and lots of, I think a partnership is always a good way to do this. Working with our partners elsewhere, if one of us can access the data, we want to be able to access it so that we can share it. And having all these agreements in place in advance is going to be important. And well, hopefully it's working and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there slowly. Technology and data aside, human error and complacency are also contributing factors, uh, I imagine. Um, what is your human ignorance project? It's not my project, I should say. It's my, my personal project to promote another project. And this started for me, oh gosh, a number of years ago, uh, where when I watched a TED Talk by Hans Rosling, and a person I wish everyone in the world knows about because he gave a TED talk about ignorance. And he asked a question that at the time, I'm a hazard scientist, so I, I think I thought I knew the answer. He said, what do you think has happened to the total number of deaths from disasters, nat- from natural hazards in the last century? And he asked this question to the crowd and he said, do you think it's doubled? Do you think it's halved? Do you think it's stayed the same? And I thought, okay, in the last 100 years, and the population in the world has basically doubled. So I thought, that surely the number of deaths must have gone up. And it's, it's completely the opposite. The deaths have dropped by less than a half over the last century, despite populations growing up. So I thought, as a hazard scientist, I don't know this. Why should I expect everyone else to know that? So that's where it all started. And it was about eight years ago now, 10 years ago, when, 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 I, when I came across this. And I came completely obsessed that how are we so ignorant about the things that we think we're experts at? And it turns out we're not, it's just not just us, it's everyone. Uh, we think we know what the world is and we base our choices and opinions and our sort of voting on these opinions that we have that aren't always based in facts. So simple things like, it's not necessarily about hazards either, it's about global progress, really. So if you ask someone such so a question like, you know, how many kids do you think are vaccinated against measles, for example, which is the most basic vaccine in the world? One might say 40%, 50%, because a vision of a vaccine is, you know, of, of the of, of the basic picture of the world. And a lot of the world is, you know, poor people you see in the news and they're not getting vaccines. I think, oh, 50, 60%. Actually, it's 80, 90% of the world is vaccinated against measles, despite poverty and those issues. And, and these are relevant to the earth sciences and hazards because, you know, our perceptions of the world matter when we start thinking about development aid and allocation of funding and, and sort of the way we work with our partners. So I spent a little while trying to designing talks and giving lectures about, you know, and trying to test people's perceptions of the world and showing them that actually our views of the world are quite outdated. The world is often, by most measures of human progress, in general, a better place than it has ever been in the past, despite, you know, these local issues, I mean, Ukraine, Syria, etc. And these are all devastating things. But in general, globally, progress has been quite dramatic. And all that has resulted in higher resilience to natural hazards in the world. So wealthier nations tend to be better at managing impacts of hazards. Poverty itself is one of the great unifiers when it comes to suffering in in disasters. 
And so I, I, I've been a little bit remission to make, you know, that raise that awareness bell. And not only that, I think we're better off if we know more about the world and sort of we don't have misconceptions about the world. Africa is not this place of dire poverty and people are dying, not getting vaccines and, and famine and whole hunger and all that. It is a dynamic continent that has its challenges, but has made dramatic progress over the last few years. Um, I mean, to celebrate that, as well as acknowledging that you know, we need to do lots of good work still. There's loads of work we need to do, or they need to do, together with us and all our international partners to, to make progress quicker. I'm so glad you mentioned um, misconceptions and resilience, because that was actually my next question. How do you create resilient communities? Or is that, is that too broad a question? Oh, that's a, that's a PhD topic. <laughs> so that is a huge, huge topic, because within them are two words that are really not well-defined, resilience and community. And so we, we, haven't, we haven't even got definitions, true definitions of those two words. So you know, we'd probably start there. But, you know, definitions, semantics aside, we want, we want stronger communities, resilient communities, safer communities. And, and really, we need to understand what they are. Communities are people, ultimately people. And stronger, resilient communities are always about strengthening community people bonds. And people bonds not with themselves, but with their other institutions. So whether that's the police force, the fire brigade, their local MPs, their government departments who support them, who sort of channel their sort of resources through to them. Resilient communities start with start building resilient relationships. And if you don't have those, then those relationships will then you know be the ones that suffers when there's a hazard. Because hazards are natural. Well, in my field, hazards are natural, mostly natural. Earthquakes, volcanoes, you cannot stop them. They will happen. And so a disaster is, is always people. So when you stick a natural thing with vulnerable communities is when you get a disaster. And so the only control we have here is the middle, the community, the vulnerability of people and the infrastructure that revolves around people, roads, buildings, factories, all that stuff. That's where we have control. Most of the time, we have little control on the hazards. And so resilient communities starts about making resilient infrastructure, resilient relationships, and an open and honest relationships. Transparency is quite important in this. So one really good example would be, in most countries in the world, has a a building code on how buildings should be built uh, to withstand their local hazards. And sure, our knowledge of those hazards can be improved, and, and that's what we work on, trying to improve those knowledge, that knowledge and inform those new building codes to make them better. But even if all the current buildings in the world were built to the current building standards, most people would be safe, even much, more sa- much safer. So there is a disconnect between having a, a, a regulation, a code, that's you know, the zeal management authorities, and then people implementing that. And that's again, and that could be because there's that relationship has, has broken down in trust or value or, or there's something wrong there. And so I feel resilient community is always about that, building that level of trust and those relationships, as well as, of course, you know, all that then results into stronger buildings, safer buildings, and a, or lesser corruption. All that is a result of building good trust. 
are there any areas uh, in the world that don't have that transparency or aren't implementing those building codes on a human level? Or are there any areas um, on a physical note that you are aware of or, or are danger areas in the coming decades? Unfortunately, um, this is an issue everywhere in the world, rich and poor, I'm afraid. <laughs> None of us can escape this, this issue. There's a really fantastic organization called Transparency International. Corruption is something that's really hard to measure. And what, so what these guys do is measure the perceptions of corruption. How corrupt do we think a place is based on surveys and other reports and other data they collect? And amazingly, uh, if, and every country is given a score between zero and 100, a zero being complete and utterly corrupt and 100 being angelic, no corruption whatsoever. And so, you know, no country scores zero, no country scores 100, but most countries score a number in between that. And what's really worrying for me is that two thirds of all countries in the world score below 50. So 50 being the middle point where you, you, you're not corrupt, you're not completely angelic, you're in the middle somewhere. Two thirds of all countries fall in the more corrupt side of that line, which is quite interesting because these people are then are the ones who are building your homes. <laughs> uh, that, you know, which is not a problem in most countries in the world because we have regulations in place. You know, in the UK, we have inspectors and inspectors who you know, should you know, inspect your buildings and homes. In most countries, they have inspectors too, the poorer countries anyway, but they're just under-resourced, understaffed, or open to you know, being, taking some money and signing it off. But that just means then your homes are built badly. And so unfortunately, while this is prevalent in most countries in the world, it's the poorer countries that suffer the most from this because they're often the, uh, where, where the corruption gets hidden. And without naming any countries, I think this is definitely a problem because you can have a badly built house in a place that doesn't have a hazard and you'll be fine. Right? If there's no earthquakes in this place, you can have a bad house and you'll be, still be okay. But if you have an earthquake, if you live in an earthquake zone, a badly built house means you are now at really risk, a real risk. So it's that intersection of hazard and vulnerability because of corruption that, that matters the most. Some of my biggest worries at the moment, not because of the corruption issue, but simply because there are loads of people there, is Central Asia. The, the, the band from about Italy to China, this whole zone, called the Alpine Himalayan Belt, is an area of high exposure and vulnerability to earthquakes, at least. Most fatalities in the world happen in that region, in earthquakes, which is quite extraordinary because the largest earthquakes don't happen there. The largest earthquakes, the strongest and most energetic ones that we hear about that causes tsunamis and things like that, happen around the so-called Ring of Fire around the Pacific Ocean where they have these loads of earthquakes and volcanoes and there's really, really big ones, like the ones that we had in Japan a few years ago now that generated the tsunamis. And some some people remember the Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami in 2004. These all happened on that Ring of Fire area. And yes, they are very damaging and extremely dangerous earthquakes. However, in total, over the last 100 years or even 1,000 years, the majority of fatalities in earthquakes have happened in Central Asia from around, say, Turkey to China, that, that whole zone. And that's simply because the vulnerability is much higher. The earthquakes tend to be smaller there, and they ha- tend to happen less often in any one place, but the people there are more vulnerable to them. So there's that real strange disconnect. It's not always the biggest hazard that causes the most fatalities. 
it's the one that intersects with the vulnerabilities of people that causes the danger. That's so interesting to have to have your insight. Um, finally, Iqbal, um, what three things would you wish for or change in the current hazard risk management approach, maybe with um, the Alpine Himalayan fault in mind that you just mentioned? Yeah. Well, firstly, you know, as I mentioned before, risk is all about people. So we as physical scientists really need to appreciate that. And we can build our hazard models, we can build our earthquake models, volcanic models and landslide models, etc., which is we, we need to do, of course. And that's there's a lot of research we need to do to improve those models and understand the processes that work behind them. But ultimately, risk is about people and the things that people live with, associate with roads, buildings, infrastructure like that. So I think a more people-centered approach is what we need to do. We need to bring communities, the people who are actually going to suffer on board, take their viewpoints on board when we've designed these strategies. It's, it's, it shouldn't be about us, well, not us. Hopefully, hopefully it's never about us. Hopefully it's local government making these decisions. It should never be about you know Europeans going somewhere and telling them what to do. That's we're not there. We should be always about supporting local governments, supporting local institutions to say, okay, we you know we can all work together on this. We can help you with what you need, but ultimately you should be making these choices by bringing you know the communities on board. It should be people centered. It should never be top down. This is how you do it. You should be like, okay, let's work together on this. We want everyone to be safer. So the second thing uh, I want to bring up is, is is stronger governance. So most countries, you know will have governments who, who understand that the hazard risk is something they need to worry about. But it's the, having those institutions in place to sort of manage that. So departments that are trusted and valued to work on resilience measures and working with communities and building infrastructure that are resilient to their local hazards, but also the financial institutions that happen. So we, you know, hazards will happen, sadly. So I lived in Bangladesh for a few years where floods are, happen every year. And that's a sad reality in Bangladesh. But the financial institutions in place, you know, could help support that while recognizing some, you know, communities are going to be impacted regardless. But we can put measures in place that when they are impacted, all the measures that we need to put in place to help them are already there. Whether that's food, access, you know, housing relocation, all that stuff. And, and this requires, you know, governance. And, and and having those the strong leadership in place, and the third for me, particularly from the earthquake side, is better enforcement of building codes. We spend a lot of time trying to improve our building codes, which is quite right and, and important. But even if we could implement the ones we have, we'd be a long way forwards in our resilience targets. But I don't know how we do that because it's all about people at the end of the day. It's about trust between people who build your homes and the regulators and the enforcement measures that they have in place. And the sort of, that trust has to be clear and transparent. But, you know, this is a challenge and it has been a challenge for a long time. And I'm not sure how we get around to fixing it, but certainly no one disagrees that it's important to do so. Iqbal, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures, 
and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.